The Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21, for a sermon I've entitled, The Coming of the Spirit. Would you follow along as I read? When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there was from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there was uh, Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each hears him in our own language to which we are born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the district of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they were continued, uh, continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, ah, they're full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out or pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall uh, see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and uh, women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, uh, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the spring of 1980, a seven-year-old boy named Christopher Gracius uh, was battling leukemia. The disease, which would eventually take his life, meant that he would never grow up and achieve his dream. Christopher wanted to be a police officer. Well, U.S. Customs Officer Tommy Austin befriended Chris and worked with uh, officers at the Arizona Department of Public Safety to plan an experience to lift the boy's spirit. Well, Chris spent the day as a police officer. He got to ride in a helicopter, and he received a custom-made, uh, tailored um, police uniform. And he was sworn in as the first honorary public safety patrolman in state history. Now, Christopher died soon after that, but his dream come true became the inspiration for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Now, the mission of Make-A-Wish is to give kids ages 3 to 18, suffering with a critical disease, a chance to fulfill a lifelong dream. Now, what do you suppose some of those dreams are? Well, they can be anything, but the most common one is actually a trip to Disney World. After that, a chance to meet celebrities, a movie star, professional athlete. Aaron Rodgers, the Packers quarterback, has been involved, as has George Clooney and singer Elton John. Some are just one-and-done participants, but uh, the actor and former wrestler John uh, Cena, uh, he worked with the organization for over 20 years, and he's actually done and granted 650 wishes. Well, another wish that's common is international travel or a trip to Hawaii. 
a shopping spree. There was a six-year-old boy with leukemia who was granted a shopping spree, a six-minute shopping spree at Target. In that time, he managed to grab $22,000 worth of Christmas gifts for himself and for his family. What would you wish for? You know, the word wish is found in the Bible 42 times, but most of the time it's just used as another word for want. Like when Bathsheba came to make a request of her son Solomon, and he asked, what do you wish, my mother? But there is one place in the Bible where the word wish is used where it speaks of a longing for a dream to come true. In Numbers 11, we find that Moses is tired and frustrated, worn out from dealing with the people of Israel he's been leading through the desert. They were constantly complaining and talking about going back to Egypt, and he was just simply overwhelmed. So it says, The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from among the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting. Let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is on you and put, it on, uh, put him on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it alone. Well, after they assembled, it says, The Lord came down, spoke to Moses, and he took of the Spirit who was on uh, him and placed it on the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. Now, two of the men who received the Spirit were not with the other ones at that time. And when Joshua heard that they also had received the Spirit and prophesied, he went to Moses to protest. He said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Now Moses knew what the people needed most was to receive a change of heart so that the children of Israel would have both the desire and the power to keep the Lord's commands and to follow him faithfully. His wish was that God would make this dream come true. Well, later in the Old Testament, God promised that someday he would indeed grant Moses' wish and see his dream come to fruition. In Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27, God promised Israel, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Godly Jews for centuries had been waiting for God to fulfill that uh, promise. But Jesus, right before he returned and went to heaven, said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift promised by my Father, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 4-5. Well, ten days later, God fulfilled that promise and made good on the wish of Moses by sending the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Now, the coming of the Spirit is one of the most important events in the history of redemption because it inaugurated the new covenant and it gave birth to the Christian church. Well, it is to the details surrounding this event and the significance of them for us as believers that we want to turn our attention today. So why don't we pray and then we'll get into the text. Father God, we do pray for grace and mercy that you'll help us to see what's here in this important event and how it impacts us even to this day and it can be the reason that we can trust you. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're uh, keeping an outline of this, I think we can break it into four parts. The first part you can label the event. That's verses 1 to 3, the event. Secondly, you can label that part the effect. That's verse 4. Third, the reaction. That's 5 to 13. And finally, the interpretation. And that's 14 
to 21, the event. You know, in boxing, if they have a night of boxing and you have three or four matches, the most important one is called the main event. The Oxford Dictionary defines the word event as a thing that happens, especially one of importance, or a planned public or social occasion. Now, by these definitions, both would apply to the coming of the Holy Spirit. It was a very important event planned by God the Father from eternity past to be a public event which would be seen in the streets of Jerusalem. But before we get into the significance of this event, let's look at some of the details surrounding it. Look at what it says in verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly where they assembled, but it seems likely that it was in the same room that they had been gathering to pray in the previous 10-day period. It's most likely also that this place was nearby the temple court because when the crowds gathered, there were 3,000 people at least that heard the message. It's not likely they all fit in some narrow alleyway in the streets of Jerusalem. Or more significant than where it happened, though, was when it happened. On the Jewish holiday called Hag Shavuot, which means Festival of Weeks. The Greek word is Pentecoske, which is, means 50th. It was that part of the wheat harvest festival in Israel where, and it was one of the most important days uh, in the year, just next to Passover. It was on that day that the Jews commemorated their deliverance, Passover was, from uh, Egypt after the firstborn sons of, Israel, of Egypt were all slain. In order to have the death of an angel pass by their house, they were required to take blood from a lamb and smear it over the tops and on the sides of their doorposts. In Exodus 12, 13, God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. According to the New Testament, Christ is our Passover lamb. When we trust in Christ's death on the cross, his blood removes our sins so that God's wrath passes over us. So when you start counting from the day after Passover, which would be the first Sabbath, 49 days, it brings you to Pentecost, the 50th days, because penta means five, like in a pentagram or a pentagon. Uh, Pentecost means 50, and it's at that holiday that farmers would bring in the first fruits of their harvest uh, to the temple as an offering. They were called first fruits because it was the promise of a greater harvest yet to come. I'm sure you can see the symbolism here. 3,000 people who would be saved on this day through Peter's sermon would be the first fruits of thousands, even millions, who would later be added to the church as they, in turn, were converted. Well, that's the significance and the symbolism for what was going on. But what actually occurred? What did they experience? Look at what it says in verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves as they rested on each one of them. Now they heard a sound. Notice where it came from, from heaven. It wasn't a wind, but it sounded like a rushing wind. We'd say probably a tornado. And as they're sitting there, these flame-like things darted every direction, settling upon each one of them. Now, note that it doesn't say that it was a wind, or there was a fire, but that it sounded like a wind, and something appeared as fire. These are symbols, but they're biblically significant symbols. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruah, which can be translated as breath or wind. That's also the case in the Greek language, pneuma, which uh, we talk about a pneumatic drill, one that's powered by air. Do you remember when God created Adam, he did so in a two-step process. First, he created his body out of the dust of the earth, but it was only afterwards when God breathed into his nostrils that he became a living being. It's the same with the vision of the dry bones in Ezekiel. Bleached bones scattered all across the ground. 
But as he prophesied, the bones began to rattle and started to reassemble themselves. And then as he watched, muscle grew over them and skin over the muscle. I mean, what a wild sight that would have been, huh? It says, then in, he said to me, God speaking, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of men, and say to the breath, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life, which they did. You see, it's not just that God gives physical life. We also need spiritual life, which comes from the Holy Spirit. It's not enough to be born, Jesus said. You have to be born again. Well, Jesus compared the Holy Spirit to the wind when he said this, that which is born of flesh is flesh. In other words, what you are apart from the Spirit of God. But that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed, Nicodemus, that I say to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3, 6-8. Well, that was the event, but what was the effect? What was the effect? That's what we see in verse 4. By the way, when you study... Um, Science, much of what you're doing is looking for cause and effect, isn't it? The average weight for Americans has gone up dramatically over the years. Greater average are the effect. But what's the cause? Is it that we eat too much sugar? Almost everything that you eat has processed sugar in it. Do we eat too much fat? Not enough fat? Is it lack of exercise? Is it all about metabolism? Is it just the bacteria in our gut? Do you see now that they're pushing uh, weight loss surgeries for children? When you have an effect, you need to know what the cause is. Well, here the cause of the phenomena is the, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The effect was that they began speaking with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Well, what does that mean? Was it the same thing that people experience, or say they experience in charismatic churches, where you'll hear people speaking in tongues and it's just a, a random sound and syllables that don't seem to have rhyme or reason to them, yet they believe this is heavenly language produced by the Holy Spirit? Some people think that that's what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians. That's what he's dealing with. We don't have time to look at that passage, but uh, as we go through these verses, I think we can see that Luke is not telling us this is some heavenly language, rather that these people were speaking actual known languages, ones that they had previously not learned. Well, we can expand on this phenomenon in the next section where we see the reaction to the phenomenon. That's verses 5 to 13. Now, evidently, the believers were gathered together when the Spirit descended upon them, and then they went out into the streets, probably into the temple complex, and they began to praise God. Who is that penguin? Squeakies? Or squeaks? In the Toy Story? Every now and then would say, I feel a song coming on, and then he had belt one out. Well, these people, when they were filled with the Spirit, began to overflow with shouts of praise, lifting their voices to God in adoration and worship. By the way, sometimes you'll hear people say that they go to a certain church because they just they love the worship there. But, you know, the word worship comes from the old English words, worth-ship. So to worship means to acknowledge the worth and the value of God. Many people like the music of a certain church, not because it lifts their focus towards God, but simply because it has a backbeat they can groove to. But because these people were filled with the Spirit, their worship was bubbling. It's bubbling. It's bubbling in their soul. They're singing and laughing since Jesus made them whole. Folks don't understand it, nor can I keep quiet. But it's bubbling, 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 bubbling day and night. Jesus stood and he cried out, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, 
because Jesus was not yet glorified, John 7, 37 to 39. But at this point, Jesus has been glorified, and now the Spirit has been given. Well, what was the reaction to the crowd, of the crowds to what they witnessed? Look what it says in verse 5. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under the heavens. And when they, the sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered, because each of them was hearing them speak in their own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not these men speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our own language to which we were born? And then they list out all these different places in the languages. And it says in verse 12, and they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? What was the miracle that occurred? Was it a miracle that took place in the mouths of the believers or in the ears of the listeners? Were these believers speaking Aramaic, but yet the crowds were hearing it in their own language? Or was it that the Holy Spirit supernaturally enabled them to speak various languages that they'd never spoken? Let me tell you a story before I answer that question. Many of you knew Paul Huskamp. Son comes to our church every now and then. Paul died about six weeks ago. Taught in Grantsburg for a number of years here. But back in the early 70s, uh, Paul was a young guy, and one of his friends and him decided to go to the Soviet Union to smuggle Bibles into the country. Now, I'm sure you've heard stories about such things and how God often blinds the eyes of custom agents so that they're not able to see the Bible stuffed in the suitcases. Well, Paul told some of those stories uh, of experiences that happened like that, but what I found most interesting was when he was approached by a young woman in Moscow. I think they were on the subway, and the woman asked, Do you have something for us? But is she a Christian? Is she a KGB agent? She says, follow me. They did, taking this very circuitous route eventually to her apartment to make sure that they weren't followed. And when they arrived there, her parents opened the door. And Paul opened the suitcase that was filled with Russian-translated Bibles and, and gave it to the family. They're so thrilled. I mean, because you could not get Bibles in Russia at that time. So they ate and the family talked for a while, telling about the things that they had suffered and how God had provided and taken care of them over the years. But somewhere along in the conversation, the young woman said, you know, it's amazing to find Americans who speak Russian so fluently without even an accent. And Paul said, we don't speak Russian. She said, you're speaking Russian right now. He said, no, I'm not. I'm speaking English. Well, we don't speak English. I think something like that happened at Pentecost. The Spirit gave the believers the ability to speak languages they had never learned before. By the way, you remember that God dispersed the people at the Tower of Babel because they wanted to stay together to make a name for themselves. Here, he's reversing the process, bringing people back together with various languages because now they want to make a name for God. Those who heard were bewildered and amazed, astonished, perplexed, but others were mocking, saying, ah, they're full of sweet wine. By the way, you're always going to find that. Even when there's a genuine work of God, you're going to find people who will mock one of the Spirit's greatest works that was ever performed in America was during the First Awakening under Jonathan Edwards. Many were saved and pulled back from the broad road to destruction. Others who had been slumbering in their faith were suddenly awakened. And yet, Edwards had his fierce critics, mostly among New England clergy. They mocked and ridiculed the new enthusiastic religion, as they called it. Edwards warned them, his critics that they were very close to committing the unpardonable sin, blasphemy, against the Holy Spirit. Well, that brings us to our last point, though, the interpretation. This is verses 14 to 21. By the way, back in 2014, there was a debate at the Creation Museum between uh, creationists, 
Ken Ham and evolutionist Bill Nye, the science guy who had a TV program. Tickets went on sale for it, and 900 sold out within minutes. Now, Nye tried to frame this debate as one between science, which deals with facts, and religion, which deals with myths and feelings. But Ken Ham pointed out that both the evolutionists and the creationists have the same data to work from. It's just a matter of how you interpret it. For instance, the Grand Canyon. Was that formed by a little water over a long period of time or a lot of water over a short period of time? Both of those are possible interpretations of the data. Well, some of the scientists on Pentecost saw these believers coming into the street praising God in foreign languages and they gave their interpretation. They said, oh, they're full of sweet wine. But Peter corrected their bad science misinterpretation of this events by pointing out the fault in their reasoning. Look at what it says in 14. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only in the third hour of the day. That would be nine o'clock. I mean, these believers are not coming out of Lucky's Bar and Grill at 1 a.m., they're coming into the streets of Jerusalem at 9 in the morning. Most of them probably hadn't had their breakfast yet. And they're not cracking beers before they eat their bacon and eggs. So Peter gives an alternative interpretation, which is the correct one. He said that this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Look what he says in verse 17. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even my bondservants, both men and women, I will uh, in those days pour, uh, pour, pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, there are many passages in the Old Testament which speak of the coming of the Holy Spirit, but Peter focuses on Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32. I just preached through Joel right before we started the book of Acts, and the occasion for that book was a, uh, a devastation of a locust plague on their land. And Joel was calling the people to repent um, because he said something worse was going to come in the future, an invasion not of locusts, but of a massive army that would come from the north. It would swarm like soldier, uh, the soldiers would swarm in and it caused the land to be devastated. But as a result of and in connection with this devastation, God promised that it shall be in the last days I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Now, I argued as we went through this that the final fulfillment of Joel's prophecy and the one Peter speaks of here awaits the future when Jesus returns. But what, what Peter is saying is that the last days have begun because the spirit has now been poured out. Remember the day of the Lord, as Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, has not yet taken place because it awaits the day of Jesus' return. But Peter is telling us that the days have begun because the Spirit's now given. This new covenant has been inaugurated. 3,000 people are about to enter into the newly formed entity called the church. Now this day, it'll only be Jews from these various countries. But within a few years, the church would include Gentiles from all the nations around. For believers in the church, the messianic age has already begun. The age of the Spirit has already arrived. Now, I want to make something clear, though, at this point. The Holy Spirit was active in the lives of people in the Old Testament. But there's a qualitative and a quantitative difference between the way believers in the New Testament experience the Holy Spirit and the way those did in the Old Testament. 
In both ages, the Spirit had to regenerate the person. That is, cause them to be born again. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon a select number of people and empowered them to serve God. The Holy Spirit came upon Moses. That's how he did his miracles. Later upon those 70 elders in Israel. According to Numbers 27, for, uh, 18, Joshua had the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. Those two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, were the two craftsmen who constructed the temple, or the tabernacle. We're told that God put his spirit on them so that they would design it just as he intended. Spirit came upon King Saul, but there's no evidence that he was ever saved. After he, he sinned, David uh, prayed uh, to God, pleading, do not cast me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Psalm 51, 11. Now he had seen what was the result of the spirit leaving Saul and he didn't want that to happen to him. But now in the New Testament, it's not just certain people, special people who receive the Spirit. Notice that Joel, uh, in Joel, God promises that I will pour my Spirit forth on all mankind, young men, and uh, your sons and your daughters, young and the old, and even on my bondservants, both men and women, I will pour forth my Spirit in that day. Listen carefully. Every Christian has the Spirit, and they receive it when they're born again. No exceptions. In fact, Paul tells us that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. Romans 8, 9. Explaining to the Corinthians why it mattered so much that they used their bodies in a proper way sexually, Paul exhorts them saying, flee immorality. Every other sin a man commits is outside of his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And do not, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Now think about it. If you're a believer, the God who created the universe and holds it in his hands dwells in your heart through the Holy Spirit. And it's a permanent dwelling. We don't have to pray like David not to have God take his spirit away from us because Jesus told us in John 16, or 14, 16 to 17, I will ask of the Father and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you, and he will, future tense, be in you. And it is God, the Holy Spirit, who is at work in us, both to will and to work, to do his good pleasure. Well, there's so much more we could say about the work of the Holy Spirit and the believer. As a matter of fact, I'm starting a new Sunday school class today on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But right now I want to finish up just by making a few summary statements and then some specific application to two different types of people listening to me today. So here's the first summary statement. The coming of the Spirit on Pentecost was a momentous event, second in importance only to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was a momentous event, second in importance only to the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the day that they all predicted. This is the day they were longing for. Secondly, His coming opened a whole new era in salvation history. The new covenant has now been instituted and the church was born on that day. So how about a couple of applications? First of all, to believers. If you're a believer, God has given you the power to live a God-honoring life. Paul tells us in Galatians 5.16 that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We can have victory over sin 
as we by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. Romans 8.13 Christians wage war against sin, but we wage in the power of the Holy Spirit. But what if you're not a Christian yet? Well, if you're not a Christian, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And that explains why you're still a slave to your sins. What can you do? Well, the last verse in this section holds out an opportunity and provides a promise. It says, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on the Lord to save you. Call on him today. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Come to Christ today. Because if you do, I know that my wish will come true and the wishes of a lot of others. Let's pray. Our Father and God, this was a one-time, non-repeatable event, one that had been prophesied for hundreds, yea, a thousand years, and yet it was fulfilled on that day. We are not living before the coming of the Spirit, but after. And so you've granted us everything that we need for godliness and living the lives we should. But that doesn't mean it's not a battle, Lord. It is a battle. It's a constant battle because we never get past the fact that we're fallen sinners until the day that we're resurrected and given new bodies. But until that day, Lord, we do want to wage war against sin. But the only way we can do that is through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for his patience with us in teaching us, in putting up with us, in uh, uh, correcting us, and returning us to the correct path. So, Father God, we pray for much grace and mercy, and we pray that your Spirit would work even today for the people who hear this message, uh, both on the Internet and who will hear it on the radio programs. So we pray a blessing on each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.